Um, pens. Uh, disposability, form factor, budget. I have so many questions. <laughs> so many questions. Make money online. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I, I think the most important one is why now? Why not six months ago or six months from now? Well, yeah. I mean, you can you can get a pen any time, man. I mean, again, it's a personal decision. <laughs> true, true. But uh, pretty disposable, uh, not necessarily refillable, uh, less fancy, more usable. Uh, okay. I prefer gel to anything else that I've tried so far. Okay. May I recommend going on the website jetpens.com. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is basically the entire pen and stationery section of Tokyo hands rendered <laughs> in America. This is amazing. It's fucking incredible. Um, I actually just placed a giant order for my notebook on jetpens.com. And if you just go pens, so they have fountain pens, they have gel pens. They have so, 13 subcategories of gel pens. They sure they have do, scented gel pens. They have scented gel pens. That's, they have enough scented gel pens. And enough scented gel pen enthusiasts <laughs> that they felt it necessary to create... So look at just if you scroll down on the landing page for gel pens, you get um, all of the, the, the photos like uh-huh. and just look at those. They have different tips for the gel pens. They have erasability. They have sets. They have product lines. They have pen type A on there, which is really stupid and weird. And um, yeah, pen type A, they literally call it. This pen is over-engineered to crazy town. (laughs) It is a $160 gel pen. Welcome (laughs) to your new reality. Like, your budget could literally stretch into five figures with pens. I... I I'm looking at the Karas Customs, spelled with a K, Bolt, Bolt Pilot G2 Pen Dash Copper for $115. Right. There's that. That exists. This is insane. It's insane. You just went down a very deep. Um, and like it, it looks like the refills here are. It's just a standard Pilot G two refill. I'm spending 115 dollars for the canister. This isn't magic ink. This is. So this is the thing with a lot of pens. A lot of the value is in the barrel. So mm-hmm. there's um a there are two companies in Japan. One of them is called Platinum, and one of them is called Nakaya. Nakaya is platinum nibs grafted onto a custom handmade barrel and the difference is $300 like for the starting pen and um it's all in presentation and luxury and how you how you promote yourself this is why it's why Alan Weiss says uh you know get a Cartier or Mont Blanc right and he's wrong because there are a million better brands than Cartier and Mont Blanc but he's right in that the pen signifies. Yeah, the pen communicates status. Who cares what's on the inside? I mean, like, we could draw an analogy to proposals right here. Like, uh, uh, going from, hey, I wrote this in Word and sent it over to, oh, hey, this is something I made in Remark or used a professional template on. Yeah. It's going to be the same content. It's the same oh. ink. It's yeah. the presentation. Right. So I'm Googling Mont Blanc ink. Okay, I'm at, no, I'm at the, the website for Mont Blanc ink. Uh, $19 for a refill of Mont Blanc ink. And it cost, and it's got you, you know, probably several dozen at least refills because it's 60 milliliters of ink, right? So you're getting the ink, 
from these high-end pens, but like a Mont Blanc starts at like $600. Oh my God. So you're, again, you're paying for the barrel. So when I'm saying, I hear disposable gel pen, I think you're, you know, your budget is topping out at like $3 for a pen, right? Let's, mm-hmm. Or $5 for a nice pen. Um, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure I've ever bought a pen that cost more than $3. This is a right. whole new world. I've got a, a pen that I'm holding right here called a Lamy Safari, and it's a fountain pen, and, and it's a, got a very nice nib on it. It's a $20 fountain pen. Um, and that, that sounds expensive, but when you think, okay, this Lamy Safari has the exact same nib on it as a Lamy Studio, which costs $120. But if you Google Lamy Safari and Lamy Studio, they're vastly different looking pens. One of them looks like it would be owned by an executive or given as a corporate gift or something like that. And the other one, um, they literally call this a student pen so that you can be a college student, get like a beater pen to learn on and and fuck up the nib on. And and that that's that's a category of pens. Like literally a category of pens. That uh, is insane. They call them beginner pens on on jet pens, but yeah. So they got a Lamy Safari. I don't know why it's twenty eight fifty on Amazon. It's like twenty. I think I paid twenty for mine. Um, but it looks like a weird chintzy plastic pen that happens to have a nice metal nib on it. It reminds me of like the Copec markers uh, my friends in art school would always use. Yeah, Copec markers are amazing. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're expensive, but you're mm-hmm. paying for it being good quality, expensive, uh, expensive stuff. I used some of the highest end ink on the market, and it was $30 for the bottle. Wow. 28. I'm looking on jet pens right now. It says it's 28. No, and that's to refill the fountain, the foundation fountain pen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is an Akaya, because mm-hmm. I'm that mm-hmm. guy. And people will comment on Skype about my pen. Um, (laughs) And it's this tiny, crappy image. Like, how are you physically capable of sussing out that I have a nice pen? Um, I'm grateful for it. People are like, wow, what what is that pen? The instant I pick it up, I'm like, it's just a Japanese, tiny family-run business. It's it's, it's good. I like it. See, I'm fascinated now. So there's obviously a deep world of pens here. I, oh, I was amazed at how deep the world of watches is. And oh, dude. Like there's knockoff Rolexes. Are there knockoff versions of the Nakaya? Is there a gray market for pens in the same way? Um, there are ripoff Montblancs. And I won't say ripoff because they're high quality. There are a lot of things just Montblanc. It's more like high, high-end couture fashion. You have one industrial design that sets the standard, and then all of a sudden you have Mont Blanc-like things. So it's not like you're getting like a ripoff of a coach purse or something like that, where it's not the high quality that you would expect it would, right? It's still a fancy object. You're just paying $200 for it and getting it from Japan, and it doesn't have the little white dongle thingy on the top, right? So I'm pasting you this link right now. This is my favorite thing in the watch industry right now. Some Swiss company made a $30,000 watch that's in the exact same form factor as the Apple Watch. It's 38 millimeters. It's the exact same shape, and it takes Apple Watch bands. 
Oh my gosh. And it's I a have... high end mechanical watch. And they're making only 50 of them. And it's what, 25,000 each? I think it's like that. But it looks exactly like that, mm-hmm. which is now, shocking to me. This is, this is fascinating. So, I mean, there's like a very cool element of parody in this, but also a declaration of you want the form factor, sure, but it's not going to be as amazing as an actual watch. Uh, uh, what is the brand on this? Uh, Moser. Moser yeah. and C. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is an heirloom object. Like, it's mm-hmm. its a high-end mechanical watch that's meant to be passed down among generations, the, the whole adage with Rolex being the same way. And it's a family-run business making 50 of these by hand. And it's, it's a ripoff of an Apple. It looks like an Apple Watch. It looks exactly like an Apple Watch. Yeah, it's the same round-wrecked sides of it. This looks identical to, to it. To the millimeter! It's a 38 millimeter watch. And and nobody's going to go and say H Moser in C is is like making garbage here. Like this is clearly a beautiful object and and if you handed one to me I would be gobsmacked and probably eBay and buy a car. You know, this is a car worth of a watch. Right? This is- this is amazing. I, I'm on the Moser site right now and just scrolling through. Oh, my Beautiful. God, dude. Oh. So the whole, like, I mean, when, when somebody's like, I want a pen, and they come to me, I'm like, okay, what, what's your budget? How many zeros is at the end of your budget? Um, because I, I have to cringe a little wondering, are you coming to me wanting a high-end pen? Are you coming to me saying, do I want a Mont Blanc? It's like I want a restaurant in Chicago. Can I send you to Garib Nawaz, which is $4.50 for curried goat parts? Or do you mean Girl and the Goat, which is more on the $80 slow food side of things? Or are you actually just leading into the sentence, I really want to go to Alinea? <laughs> because all you've heard of in Chicago is Alinea, and you don't know anything else about the dozens of other fine dining options in the city, all of which are Michelin rated. And you think Alinea is good because Grand Ackett's has promoted a certain measure of authority on on who he is. And then I have to go and wind that back and suggest things that cost a third as much and are just as good or better. Mm -hmm. There's something to be had here. We are recording a Make Money Online episode right now. We just began this phone call for... There's something to be had about like how you build your authority and how you how you promote yourself. Because when people think high-end pens, they think Mont Blanc. They think, if they, if they really bother digging into it, they might think Cross or Pilot. Um, mm-hmm. But they don't think of all of the, like, mom-and-pop shops or all the, like, the ones that aren't really talked about, like Sailor um Coeco, um, which is not a mom-and-pop shop by any stretch of the imagination, but it's what, like if you go to like a like a hipster boutique and for some reason they're selling a fountain pen you get a coeco like it's that brand um they're like hex barrel made of aluminum they're tiny and they don't show off they're not made of gold how you position yourself as a luxury good there's tons of lessons from places like mont blanc or um or Rolex, or mm-hmm. or this, or or any of the things you see on Hoden Key, which is the watch site I just sent you. If you just click around that, like it's it's all about high end mechanical watches, and and you're talking, 
into the millions complications that are uh, like 35 different moving elements in it. And there's one called the Grand Super Complication, which I love the name of so fucking much. Oh my God. And it's by Patek Philippe, which is like one of the highest end Swiss watchmakers. It's owned by like some Qatari or, or Emirate like, um, like chic or something like some, some high end royalty in, in there. And it's this enormous, insane custom made watch. And, and like that got built and that exists. Can can I describe what I'm seeing here for the audience? Yeah, sure, sure. I, I am seeing a gold pocket watch, a 24-hour pocket watch, and inside of it in the center is a complication, is the industry term, yeah. of what appears to be the night sky. So yes. as this watch ticks forward, you could know just by glancing at your very, very nice pocket watch, the current position of the various stars in the sky. Why not? Why not? This, this is... I, I I lack the vocabulary to to describe this. this you know, is Kai, both absurd and amazing. Kai, sometimes it's cloudy and you can't see the night sky for yourself, or you're in a city where there's light pollution and you can't have the Milky Way above you. So this watch is there to solve your problem. Can you imagine how <laughs> your problem that exists? Can you imagine how horrible it must be to wind this thing? <laughs> Well, I think at the point where you own this watch, you have hired multiple people to wind it for you. Yeah, there's probably, it's probably like your lead butler, like the head of the butlers, the team of butlers that you have. Assume there's more than one butler and there's a pecking order. <laughs> the gentleman's gentleman, gentleman. Oh my god. I'm uh, uh, scrolling through the Holding Key article on this. Sotheby's has a pre-sale estimate of in excess of $15 million for this watch. A single watch. This is amazing. For yeah. anybody that doubts value-based pricing is a thing, I, oh my god. <laughs> Look at this watch. Get get it custom made for yourself or or doubts really the like tradition of watchmaking. They look at Apple watches and smart watches and they think, well, now the watch industry is fucked, which it might be. It's unclear. Um, but like there was a person with tweezers machining and placing every component of this watch. There was an engineer designing every component of this watch. And there's one of them. My God. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting from a like, I don't know, like almost a Wu-Tang album standpoint where you press only one of them and it, it gains this lore about it because mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing fascinates me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The folklore surrounding objects like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, having it pass through hands like, oh, uh, a Qatari royalty owned this. And before that, I don't know some idol of of yours owns it or or whatever you know like what what the story is behind it gains this like this like baffling legend um mm -hmm. and there's legends in there's legends in consulting i'm going to bring this back to making money online now um there's there's like gigs that went particularly well there's things people did um there's one guy uh who's known on his Wikipedia page, because of course he has a Wikipedia page, for making the first designs of the Facebook like button. And like, 
that's kind of amazing. You know, that had to come from somebody. And and if you can say, oh, my portfolio contains the like button, it's like, oh, you designed a like button. No, I designed the like button. I designed the ontological concept of the like button. Um, that can be lore, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you can spin that in a way that that puffs you up significantly. Can you imagine the engineer behind this watch? Oh, my God. I, I'm thinking of, uh, I used to read the blog of the engineer behind the, what was it? It was the pricing system in AdWords. And so this engineer is responsible for the billing code, the pricing code that generates 97% of Google's revenue. Yeah. Similar. Uh, yeah. Uh, the event of the engagement, be it employee or not, just takes on this larger than life aspect. Yeah. People forget that Larry Page and Sergey Brin invented PageRank, I feel. You know, mm-hmm. like they mm-hmm. they just think of them as the founders of Google and they don't they don't bother to stop and ask like you you really kind of made the Internet indexable. You made it. We went from having like a like a shit show morass of Alta Vista and Lycos and uh, Ask Jeeves and all these other things competing with one another. You, you made the Internet legible in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And, and no, they just get known for being the CEO and co-founders of Google. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know if that's quite as important. You know, I don't think it is. I think that, or I, I think it is more important that they crafted PageRank because that gave birth to this idea of indexing and this idea of ranking when before we were just left with, I, I, I struggle to even remember how AltaVista and early search engines chose how to display what over what, but they gave birth to, I mean, the industry of search engine optimization, they gave birth to so many different things with that invention. And really, appropriation. I mean, what is it but saying, well, we see how uh, citations to uh, academic papers stack up to give more authority to a specific professor or a specific person. Let's appropriate that and substitute links for citations, and boom, there you have PageRank. Right. Right, right. Grossly oversimplified, but that's enough for a podcast. Uh, go, mm-hmm. go, Google it. <laughs> right. See, uh, <laughs> jumping back a couple threads to bring it back to consulting again. I'm also interested how, when I pose the question of what do you recommend for a pen, you don't go into explaining. Oh, you need to get X Y Z pen. You're trying to understand what my need is. I'm saying I want a pen. You're saying, well, you want a pen. That's great. What do you need? What's the budget? What are you looking to do with this pen? Is this going to be an heirloom object? Is this going to be the thing you chew on during a Skype call? What is the purpose of this thing? And as we've learned as consultants, when a client comes to you, they could very easily say, like in my case, I want more traffic. In your case, I want my traffic to do more things. I want to make more money. But it's only by interviewing that client and really understanding what the fundamental, the foundational need is behind that want that we could actually execute properly as consultants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. You're asking a lot of questions, right? So um, one, of my, one of my closest friends is, uh, this is going to make all of you cringe. He's a car salesman. And he outperforms by like 6x everybody in his department, and he's been promoted twice in the past year. He sells more cars than any person on the like on the showroom floor. And people need cars. So, you know, and they need traditional sales process. They get the cars sold to them. So this guy provides a valuable function. Um, and what he told me was like, 
you know, I just ask questions. I just like figure out what their needs are and make sure that they feel heard. And that does two things. Number one, you end up with a car that you're actually going to want to buy as a consumer if the person is asking questions. And number two, you feel heard. There is such a strong impulse, very deep lizard brain psychological impulse for humans to feel heard. It's why we get on phone calls with people. It's why we complain about our day. It's why we um, it's why we get enjoy getting interviewed. Um, there's a lot of lot of reasons why we want to be heard. And we have everybody has that impulse. You have it. I have it. And think about the opposite. If somebody is like super type A and just steamrolls you and only talks about themselves, you're going to think they're a blowhard. Right. So mm-hmm. um, my friend does well in his industry by asking questions. And what was the first thing I did when you like asked me about the pen? I like took a deep breath and asked you three questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was to make sure, OK, well, this guy isn't just taken by Mont Blanc's marketing. He wants a certain type of pen with these certain needs at this price point. So I should direct him to jet pens and not. Um, a blog called Pen Addict, which is a guy who owns a ton of fountain pens and tests them out and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It gives me a game plan because I know enough about pens to not sound idiotic on a podcast that is being splayed out to a lot of people. But, you know, not enough that I, I know you and your needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think comes back to the idea of authority and expertise as a consultant. You don't need to be the Mont Blanc pen guy to make a recommendation. You just need to know more than I do to, well, ask some questions and see what direction do I point Kai in? Is there a self-serve resource that makes sense for him? What exactly are his needs? And you just get there by knowing a little more than me about the world of pens. Right. And knowing where to go, knowing what the resources are. Um, Mm -hmm. I had somebody email me today. He was like, I need to, I I, I run Drip, uh, which is an email marketing tool, and I want to A-B test my Drip campaigns. I'm like, great, wonderful. Uh, I don't know how to do that. I'm going to, you know, go over here and enter Google the how to do that, and I'm going to learn it, and I know where the resources are for it. I know a lot about A-B testing, and that's how you branch out, right? Mm -hmm. Any programmer listening to this is like knows about where to go to learn about programming languages. They, they go to Egghead or Upcase or um, Stack Overflow or whatever have you, and they, they skill up, you know? You, you end up becoming more of a... You, you become a generalist skill-wise, even though you may position yourself as a specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. don't hire me to write drip campaigns. They don't. They hire me to do design. But sometimes I end up doing drip campaigns because... That's just what the problem is in front of us. And what am I going to do? Say no to it? Tell you to go someplace else? No, you're paying me. And I love learning new stuff. I love having that curiosity about my job. I'm going to learn how to make a drip campaign. And I might hate it, but I won't know until I try. Mm-hmm. And I think you hit on the head there. One of the fundamental concerns that consultants or business owners have when it comes to specialization, this fear that if I specialize, if I position myself, if I niche myself down, I'm going to be solving the same problem every day. I'm never going to get to learn anything new. I'm going to get bored with the work I'm doing. When really, I mean, you're very well specialized as like, for better or worse, the A-B testing guy or a UX professional. You have a very strong mind slot that you occupy 
but that doesn't prevent you from finding these opportunities to explore new aspects of an engagement, testing new things. For the drip campaign example, maybe for one client, since it's in front of you and you're like, yeah, sure, this sounds fun, let's try it. You discover you love doing that and suddenly you find a new way to add a new service offering to what you what you provide online. Right, right, absolutely. Every time I've grown my business, it's been because I was curious about something or because I ended up doing something frequently for a client. I, I started in on A-B testing because I was doing analytics for, for clients after I launched. And I was like, well, now that we've launched, what now? I started Cadence and Slang because I started writing out various principles, published them in a tiny 30-page zine and had a bunch of people like, you should do more with that. Oh, I wow. Yeah, I started coaching because I would tell people what to do with their businesses and they'd be like, I'd pay for that advice. And I'm like, oh, really? Now you can. <laughs> Check out it's, here. It's the exact same with me and all of my offerings. Like I trace back to what I'm doing right now, digital outreach, getting people on podcasts, digital public relations. And this all came out of me trying to answer the question, how do I help my clients build relevant links? And what I discovered was this: one of the solutions was, hey, get on podcasts, get media placements, place guest articles, and well, you naturally earn high quality links, plus you get short-term relevant traffic. And I discovered that having that available as a service offering was actually more valuable to the people I was talking to than what I originally was offering, link building, SEO advice. And it just let my business graduate to a new level. And every single offering I have right now has branched out and evolved from what my initial offerings were. And it's been this iterative process of learning, well, what's the real fundamental pain here? What are the different ways I could solve it? What are the different solutions people are willing to pay for? I might think of a dozen great solutions to the fundamental problem, but if nobody wants to buy them, well, great. I was able to test it, like we referenced on a previous episode, test it, launch a sales page, see if people are interested in it, and if not, kill it. And if they are, great. I have validation that people are willing to pay money for this fix and have it turn into a new line of business. Mm -hmm. Tons of good stuff there. Um, I would add on that, not only are you making those changes and adapting, but also you're in an industry probably that's a moving target. And if you're not adapting, then the target will move out of your way. And you should not have that happen. That is scary. You should always be trying to stay on top of stuff. You know, like uh, half the JavaScript frameworks that exist out there right now didn't exist five years ago. Uh, so if you're a developer, that should scare the absolute living shit out of you responsive web design did not exist a decade ago. Um, mobile device design did not really exist a decade ago. I mean, you could have made an application for the Palm Trio, whoop-de-doo. You know, as an interaction designer, I could go and continue making enterprise applications for desktop operating systems, and I would be on the wrong side of history. <laughs> no, it's true. There's a constant evolution that you need to be aware of. It, 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 this also makes me wonder about specialist versus generalist. Like if you're positioned as a specialist, does it matter that a large majority of the JavaScript frameworks that are in existence today, used today, weren't in existence five years ago? Like does that play into it or is that a background tactical detail like saying, well, modern day hammers are different than the hammers of five years ago? Nobody gives a shit what you specialize in. They don't. Mm -hmm. you, the only person who cares is you. Maybe your partner and your mom, 
but but that's it. I mean, you can reinvent yourself. There's an opportunity there, right? And you can evolve. Like you can change your specialization. Um, and and what you've done, Kai, is is evolve your specialization in ways that make sense. You know, like they step B came out of step A. You didn't just throw it away and go to underwater basket weaving. No, you're absolutely right. It was. It's been an iterative process, and sometimes that's a that's had me arrive at dead ends but sometimes it's led to new new streets new cities new routes to explore and new routes of business really yeah yeah absolutely i mean i'm i'm ramping up design again uh after roughly two years of doing a b testing and i'm still doing a b testing i just answered a long email as a prospect for wanting to do a b testing uh i'm not abandoning it i'm not throwing away that image and constantly correcting people when they call me the A-B testing guy. I would be crazy to turn down that kind of business. But I know that A-B testing is only the hotness in certain limited ways. And as people gain more insight into what it is and, and how it can help them, the more you realize, like, it's actually not for mom and pop businesses. It's more for giant clients because you have to get mm -hmm. enough traffic. And those are... I'm historically allergic to that. So, um, I mean, we can talk a lot about qualifying clients and being picky on a future episode, but I think that's, we're, we're kind of running into the end of the, the podcast here, this particular episode. What do we think the major takeaways of this episode are? Buy Mont Blanc Inc. and fill a low-end pen with it and evolve your business over time and find ways to position yourself that make you look more like a luxury good, but own that stature. Like that raises the expectations of you. Um, and, and you, you can't be sloppy, you know, like that's not, that's not allowed when you're a luxury good. Like people buy it because it's a safe bet. Mm -hmm. People know mm -hmm. that Mont Blanc is great because they have really good customer service and really good warranties. And if it breaks, they'll fix it easily. Having a premium service means you have to have premium delivery of that service. No, we could do a whole series of episodes about customer service as a consultant, positioning yourself as a premium service as a consultant, or really as a business. For sure. For sure. Just what those differences are. Well, let's do that next time. We should. Well, thank you so much for joining me for uh, this episode of Make Money Online, Nick. Oh, no problem, man. Happy to be here. Mm -hmm.